Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. Hey everyone, before I start the show today, I want to tell you about an amazing resource that can really help your business and your leadership capabilities, regardless of where you're at in your career. The website is called strategicfinancialleadership.com, and here you can get access to free articles, past podcast episodes, courses, economic indicators, and tools like the cost of capital calculator, which sounds pretty nerdy, but also cool, right? There are also membership options for you to get exclusive access to other resources that will help you to accelerate your career and drive better outcomes for your organization. Go to strategicfinancialleadership.com and enter the discount code free month to get your first month's membership covered by us. And I'm a guy who loves to change, so it's really important that the people I surround myself with know how to put the brakes on me. And I always have to be careful because I love to brainstorm, right? I love to throw ideas up. And it took me a while to figure out when you're CFO and you start throwing ideas up that are just thoughts, people start to take them as gospel sometimes. And you have to go, no, 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 we're all equals in the brainstorming room. I, you know, I, I, as I put it to my team, I often have the first idea. I rarely have the best idea. From Cultivar, it's the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a show about CFOs, entrepreneurs, and top business executives and their inspiring stories from inside the world of corporate strategy and finance. I'm Steve Coffin, the founder of Cultivar, and on today's show, I'll be talking with a chief financial officer who drives innovation with his team and transformation within his company with this simple acronym pronounced PSYCHOS. Over my professional career, there have been numerous occasions where I've walked into organizations to find a banner hanging in the shop, a sign posted in the break room, or a trinket sitting on a desk with the latest and greatest acronym on it. Not that there's anything wrong with a catchy phrase or a slogan around the office, unless nothing comes of it. Those leaders like today's guest, who understand the importance of clear, concise, and repetitive communication, and then act upon it, are those who drive meaningful impact. That's why I'm excited to speak with my guest, Hunter Creech, today about his funny acronym, PSYCHOS, spelled S for stewardship, I for insight, C for catalyst for change, O for operations, and S for strategic business partner, means for his team and organization. Knowing his leadership style, this term is not just a cute catchphrase, but rather a mindset, a commitment to excellence, and something to act upon. It embodies the very essence of strategic financial leadership. 
Hunter Creech is the chief financial officer of Bear Industries, a coal company that is a leader in providing innovative infrastructure throughout the United States. All right, Hunter. So I want to know more about your journey. So maybe you could start off by telling us a little bit about your career path up to this point. What catapulted you and what has slowed you down on your journey to becoming CFO? Sure, happy to. So I started my career at KPMG uh, right out of college, worked with some great people, but really wasn't the right career path for me. I was very fortunate to have great mentors and friends, but I always thought of public accounting, which which is incredibly important to our financial systems and all those things, but always felt like a newspaper reporter and I'd rather be making the news. So I left KPMG to go to work for a company called Ferguson Enterprises, which is a large uh, distributor of plumbing and HVAC uh, nationwide, and was lucky enough to wind up on their acquisitions team, which is, you know, pretty sexy work for a young accountant, if you can get it. Did that, really enjoyed it. Uh, Great work. But I traveled about 90% of the time. And after a few years of doing that, my wife and I were having our first daughter. And I said, well, gosh, I don't think I want to travel all the time. So I actually gave myself about a three or four year timeline to try to find something else where I wouldn't travel as much. And luckily ended up with a company called Henry S. Branscombe Inc., which is a uh, highway construction company or was at the time uh, very quickly, really quickly after we decided to start looking. I wound up there. Then that company was acquired by a company called Colas, which is still the company I work for. Ultimately, Branscombe, I was there for about 20 years uh, from the time I started. It worked my way up from senior accountant to CFO. And then uh, about four years ago, uh, the parent company Colas offered me the CFO position with a company called Barrett, which is where I am now, which is based out of New Jersey. Sister company to the company Branscombe, which is based in Virginia. In terms of what propelled me, I mean, good mentors and good leaders uh, helped me along my way. Uh, The only thing that probably slowed me down was for a long time, I was not willing to relocate. I was from the Williamsburg, Virginia area in general, and my wife was, and we had all our roots are very, very deep in that area. We we really kind of made it a priority that raising our family, that was what we wanted to do. When they knocked on the door with the other company offer, luckily we'd been talking about it, about what it would take to relocate. So we had some priorities that we had set in terms of would we consider a relocation. Um, our our children were older and it just fit us really well. So it, it hit our criteria. So we, we made the big move up to right outside New York City. Yeah, that, it's in- interesting your story about the traveling piece because you know a, a lot of financial leaders or business leaders before this whole pandemic they were on a plane a lot they were leaving their homes leaving their families and uh, on the road a lot and, and that's how it was for me I mean I was traveling like fifteen to twenty days a month when I was advising organizations and my wife you know we had our our daughter and she was two years old turning three and my wife was pregnant with our our second and you know she's like hey you need to cut the travel down. I mean, this is crazy and and no way to raise a family. So, you know, I I think it's interesting because a lot of younger professionals, they make a lot of sacrifices, especially in the beginning of their careers. But some people, they continue to make sacrifices to climb that ladder. So it's interesting how you almost put your foot down and said, hey, look, you know, I'm going to make a pivot here in order to accommodate this lifestyle that I actually want. That was always our priority. And, And my wife, who's also an accountant, interestingly, you know, we worked very, very hard on our careers. We didn't have our children. We got married fairly young, but it was years before we actually decided to, to have kids. And it, it became a question to me of what type of father I wanted to be. To me, there was nothing more important. And so, yes, it, it slowed me down, but on purpose, if you will. I mean, I, I understood the potential that I wasn't in a major market, I, the opportunities I might miss, but that was secondary to me. 
And, and in the end, obviously, it worked out. It just took longer, I think, to get the position I'm in now. Then when the time was right, I pivoted again and said, okay, well, let's pick up from everything I know and where I, the area I grew up in and all my family and every, I mean, it's my college town and everything you could want. I said, okay, let's go move outside of New York City and see what that life is like. And for us, it was a um, really, really three things. We have a daughter with a cognitive disability, so it had to be a place for a adult with a disability could have a good life. So there are certain rural areas that wouldn't make sense for us. It needed to feel like a promotion. In other words, I didn't want to move laterally in the company just to be somewhere else. And, and this company is significantly larger than where I left, so it, it's a more strategic position. And we wanted to be near a major metropolitan area because we'd never lived that life. And so, you know, New York City kind of counts as a big city, so we're near there. And, and because it fit those criteria, we knew very clearly what we wanted. And so it had to work out for me. And, and probably if even one of those was not reached, we probably wouldn't have relocated. We just, we, I wasn't forced to. I could have stayed in my old position. Yeah, that may, that makes sense perfectly. If people are listening right now, and let's just say they're you know early or mid-career, and they're just grinding away because they want to continue to advance in their organizations. Is it possible to create these like hard lines, like these personal hard lines to say, Hey, look, these are things that I'm not going to sacrifice for a career. Or do you think by doing that and by not grinding at work and, and just putting in the hours and traveling and doing all that, are you limited in your career? Does that make sense? I think it depends on your company, probably. I mean, different cultures reward different things. I'm fortunate that our company has never, to my knowledge, said you you have to move. Um, it did slow me down, right? I probably could have been in a higher role more quickly. And I was fortunate, right? If you're if you're stationary geographically, you're waiting for someone else to retire or leave for the opportunity. And that's sometimes the nature of the beast. And it happened to work out well for me. So, I mean, I encourage my professionals to be open to relocating. And now that I've done it, I probably was a little more scared of it than I needed to be. I would focus more today on, am I getting the, the right amount of family time and work time? Because work's, work's hard. And if you want to be successful, you're going to have to work hard. I think that's just commonplace. And so there's always a balancing act between what you're going to sacrifice on which side. Because, you know, I'm never fully on vacation. I'm always checking email and those sorts of things. And I'm never fully at work in the sense that, you know, my family reaches out, I'm available. And that's an okay balancing act for me. So I, I think you have to be ready to say what's your level of ambition and how fast you want to move. And that sort of determines the amount of sacrifice. Just make sure you're being rewarded for it. Absolutely. That's good advice. Well, let, let's go back to even before you were at KPMG, were you a quantitative person by nature? Were you into numbers and did you excel at math? I'm good at numbers and math. I mean, I, I think I've always been talented at that. And, and I really like accounting in the sense that I took it in high school and, and love the simplicity of double entry and balanced ledgers and, and those things. But I am not a numbers person in the sense of I can recall them quickly. That's why I have to write them down. And I can tell you that when I did my first real personality profile with the company, which is, gosh, forever ago now, and uh, the, the consultant who's working with us, the executive coach looks at me and says, wait a minute, aren't you the accountant? And he looks at my profile and he goes, you must be the most miserable accountant that ever lived, right? Because my, I'm, I'm much more about people and a little bit creative and those sorts of things, which I think leads into the CFO role. So even at KPMG, the partners who I work closely with, like, if we can just get you to partner, you're going to be great. You're going to have to grind it out till you get to use all the rest of your skills. But you amp up that part of your brain and you work it out. But certainly I'm happier in the role I do today than I ever was as a staff accountant, right? It just, I was good at it, but I didn't love it. I love what I do today, every day. 
Yeah. What do you think holds financial accounting people back from advancing in their careers? Because some of them are, are very technically savvy. Like they, they know accounting really well. They know all the compliance regulation, all, I mean, all the rules, you know, they could put together these beautiful yeah, financial Yeah, I models, think you but- can become, uh, I mean, so technical skills and necessity, like you have to have it. I mean, certainly if you can't account, you're not going to have a career in accounting. But I think to my mind of thinking uh, two things is I never confuse bookkeeping with accounting. Right. And I had a great professor who used to use that line who was actually in public practice and taught classes. He's like, you yeah, don't confuse the two, the, the, the transaction processing, even the production of financial statements. That's mostly bookkeeping. Right. Not that there isn't some accounting that has to be applied. But when you get into accounting, you're really into business. And so I've always thought of myself as a business person first. I just specialize in accounting and finance. And so I think that mindset to really want to understand the business as much as understand the technical skills is useful. And I think to move up, you sort of have to get bad at what you were good at a little bit. So if you're great technically, you may have to lose some of that to become great with people and strategy and some of the higher level sort of services that you have to provide. Yep. That makes sense. Well, let, let's talk about business then. Share a little bit about Barrett Industries. What does the company do? What does it specialize so, in? Give us sure. So Barrett is a uh, is a highway contractor at heart and, and building uh, and construction material supply. So we have quarries, asphalt plants, a trucking fleet, and we have crews that build roads. We also have an arm that does pavement preservation. So we, we take liquid asphalt and make emulsions and, and preserve the road instead of just build the road. We operate primarily in upstate New York and central Pennsylvania and Ohio and the Cincinnati, Dayton and Columbus market. So that's our, our general footprint. And it's, it's a neat business because we do a little bit of everything with long-term contracts and distribution because of our truck fleet and quarries and asphalt production. You, from an accounting perspective, it's a diverse and interesting world. And from a business perspective, it's, it's kind of a neat business. It's a boots on the ground, get things done kind of world. Yeah. And you came up with this term or somebody came up with this term psychos, S-I-C-O-S. Am I pronouncing that right? The acronym is psychos just so people could remember it. I put it as a foundation of the five rules of finance. And in all fairness, I think I coined the acronym, but a lot of the ideas are stolen from other people from all these readings and things that I did to try to find a way to get our accounting team focused. Barrett is a very decentralized company. So we have 11 operating regions, each with their own controller. And that controller is the arm of finance there. And they are the CFO of their region. And as we continue to evolve from the traditional bookkeeping role and into what I would think of real financial leadership and management, I was trying to get our, our controllers to focus beyond what they did every day. And some are well very advanced and some are still learning and that's the nature of a large and diverse organization. And so the acronym stands for, and I actually do it backwards. So it's S-O-C-I-S, a sort of ranking order in my mind. And, and the first thing that finance has to do is, is what I would call stewardship. I mean, if you're an accountant and you don't want to be a bastion of ethics and high morals, then you shouldn't have gone into accounting. Sure. Uh, you should be a model of ethics and you need to be somewhat pragmatic about internal controls and it's the idea that you're, you're someone that can be trusted, not only by the people you work with, but by the people who own the company, which is what a stewardship is, is being entrusted with someone else's asset and with the public, right? You, you should be someone who can be trusted and is honest and transparent. And, and that, I think, is the first role. You have to do that. That's sort of part and parcel of who we are. The next is O for operations, meaning that's the bookkeeping. It's blocking and tackling. It is can we transaction process? Can we cut checks and do receivables and do billing? Can we stay in compliance and file our taxes and all the things that we know we have to do? And if we can't do that well, we can't ever get to the next level. And even the production to me of 
basic financial indicators is basic operations of a, of a finance department. And in those two areas, truly operations, you work at being efficient. It's about how reasonably cost-effective can you do those things and balancing timeliness and accuracy and all those things. The third one to me is where it gets really interesting, but that's the nature of CFOs, I imagine, which is uh, the C stands for catalyst. And, and we use the word catalyst instead of like change or change agent because not every accountant is supposed to be the person who spearheads some major innovation, but every accountant, like a catalyst in a chemical process, can make that change go better. They can be someone who facilitates, sees ideas, builds on what's being done, can manage the process, even if they're not the person who, who drives change. Now, I'm a change driver, so it took me a long time to come to the realization not everybody wants to do that. But I think it's reasonable to expect any accountant who generally has a good perspective of the company to be helpful in making whatever change we're trying to do across an organization go. So that's the catalyst role. Uh, and, and it's one of those things that I love change and not everybody does, so I always have to be respectful of that. The third, the I, is insight, or I would say business insight. I mean, that's where we start to analyze the financial information and develop KPIs and understand the difference between a key performance indicator and just what is a key metric. And, and to me, the big push here is going to be into data analytics. We've plunged into that full bore in the last couple of years and, and trying to prioritize what we're doing there and, and make that a big, a big piece of our strategy and effective to help the company. But it's really, you know, that idea of, of seeing beyond the numbers and finding business meaning that's business insight. I think that's sort of basic conceptually. And the last S is strategic business partner, which is, I think, what everybody who wants to be a CFO should aspire to be. And that requires some amount of business acumen, not just technical acumen like we talked about. Some of it comes from experience. Some of it comes from knowledge of your business and what drives your business. And it's where you go beyond just learning the numbers, but understanding how things work together and how you can be that key business advisor to whoever your boss or coworkers are. And so that's the psychos acronym. And the idea was that I wanted our controllers to, when they set their annual goals, there should be one in each category. And different levels, you're focused on different pieces of that, but you should never ignore any one of them. And how prepared do you feel like accounting and, and finance professionals are when they're coming out of school, coming out of public accounting, and they're entering you know, the, the corporate environment? Do they have these types of mindsets to you know, accompany the, this acronym that you came up with, or are there some massive gaps that you see? It's interesting. It's almost easier with fresh accountants because when you come out of business school, you've been taught strategy and uh, you've been taught to think like that. And business analytics, somebody who's graduating now, there's a lot more of some of my guys have been with us 30 years, right? So, so some skills are very much there. I think the idea of business acumen and really understanding business, some of that I think comes from experience. Some people have some natural aptitude, but you actually have to go do it and touch it and be willing to that. So I think sometimes the largest challenge from new hires from right out of school is a certain level of humility. They think they're ready to be CFOs, but there's a lot of work to get to that point. So I think that's normal. I think that uh, almost every professional in their first year needs that great humbling moment. I can remember mine in public accounting where I thought I was big stuff and I got humbled by a, a manager on a job and you go, okay, I need to take a step back and sort of maybe not be so cocky about what I'm doing. How do you practice that humility? I mean, you're coming in and you know you feel like you, you know all this stuff and how do you have that self-awareness or like what does it take to be mindful of that? 
I mean, I'm a horrible one to ask because I've never been accused of having an excess of humility. So maybe I'm not the right person. But I mean, I think that some of that you just learn by experience when you really screw something up. Uh, and that sounds terrible. And so I think it's important when you are managing particularly young hires is you give them the opportunity to make a mistake and be forgiving about it. But they learn that they don't know everything. And, and some of that comes from experience. Some of it comes from being around people who practice it. And it helps to be part of a team instead of sort of thinking it's an individual sport. But to me, there's no substitute on humility for an experience where you get humbled. Not that we try to make that happen, but it inevitably happens sometimes in your first two years of your career. You discover you may not know as much as you thought you did. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, you've had mentors, you're a mentor to people and you, you coach people in your, your CFO role. What do you look for in a mentor? And like, how do you mentor and coach people? How does that actually go down? I use those two words that are very different to me. And mentors to me is a very organic relationship that just sort of develops naturally. And, and to me, a mentor is a lifelong relationship, right? And, and often not someone within your company, but it could be. And it's usually someone who's a couple levels up from you because that's sort of how the relationship has to work. So I think, I, to my mind, I always put mentor in a different category. And, and I've been blessed to have some people, some are family, some are not. There's people I could go to in any situation and know they were wholly vested in the best outcome for myself. And coaching is a little different. To me, coaching often is a specific time period as a good place to see if someone's going to be a mentor. So I, I may coach someone and every once in a while develops into that true lifelong mentor relationship, but I may coach them through some specific things. But what you try to pair to me is depending on who you, what you're trying to develop or, or who you're trying to develop, you either pair somebody very similar because they can learn from a, a leader who leads the way they do, which I think sometimes we run into trouble trying to develop someone who's not going to lead like we lead, right? And so when you talk about leadership, to me, it's really important that they have a good role model who leads maybe like they do if they're a quiet leader instead of I'm a loud leader. So a quiet leader. Conversely, sometimes you want just the opposite. So it really has to be tailored towards the person that's trying to be developed and to recognize that the coach doesn't always know everything and, and they got to be willing to take on the role. And the reason I like coaching is, okay, this is going to be a six-month relationship. And then we can evaluate it and nobody's committed for life. And then you can come back and, and adjust it depending on what you're trying to develop and who makes sense for them to work with. Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. And that's a good way to look at that. You know, I like how you distinguish between the mentor and the coach. Let me ask you this. How do you help somebody to become the strategic business partner that you're talking about? Say one of your controllers, one of your 11 controllers says, Hey, I really want my seat at the table from a strategic perspective. I want to think more strategically. I want to be more strategic. How do you go about doing that? So most important in that is that you have the right relationship with, and generally speaking, in our case, to be a regional manager, in my case, to be the president of the company, that you have the right relationship there to even be starting down that path. And sometimes it's very hard because we may have a 28-year-old controller and a 55-year-old regional manager. So it, it can be very difficult for them to be viewed as that strategic business advisor. So some of it is educating the regional manager. So you want them on board. And, and luckily, in my role, I'm going to say, look, we have this great controller with you. You put them in that coaching role. I want you to help coach them into strategy. 
And then they sort of have a vested interest and then start to listen when it goes well, which it usually does. And then I think you you assign them specific tasks or give them places to look. Um, And one of my things with finance professionals is get them thinking offense. And by that, I mean, we're pretty good in our industry of how do we reduce costs? How do we improve process and those things? But we're not always great about how do we analyze the market and look for opportunities? So for finance people in particular, they have the advantage of knowing data and having the time to analyze it. If they can bring some data with them to the conversation, I think they get listened to very quickly and apply it to a strategy. I mean, then we try to be a sounding board before they try to make some big pitch and, and have a safe place they can come to up the finance chain of command and say, here's my ideas. Does this make sense? To help them when they go to make the big pitch to their boss that they had a chance to bounce it off somebody in between. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's talk about data because you mentioned it. I remember years ago, I was in Vegas. I was teaching a course called, Is Gaining a Competitive Advantage Through Data Analytics? In this talk afterwards, this participant came up to me and said, look, I just think data is just you know, it's overrated. This big data stuff is just so trendy. I don't think there's a whole lot that you can actually extract out of data, even though construction has, you know, a ton of data points. So let me ask you this, is data just a bunch of hype or can you really make changes like impactful changes with data analytics in business today? I mean, I think it's really interesting where this has gone over the last even five years, right? Certainly, everybody can see what Amazon can do with it, where you place an order and they recommend three things to you in a millisecond that are very often on point of things you might want to buy, right? That's, to me, big data. And we're really talking most often smaller data sets, but with the tools they've developed and the things that are out there now, I think it's absolutely critical to the future. Here's how I gauge it, right? So I went to William & Mary in Virginia And for as long as I can remember, there were four, I mean, long before I was there for 50 plus years, there were only four majors in the business school. It was marketing, management, finance, and accounting. That's what you were going to major in if you came through the business school. It wasn't one that had a thousand different majors. And a few years ago, they added business analytics as another major. And that could have caught my attention because they don't do that lightly. And so I really began getting into it. And with some of the tools that they can do now, like R and Python and things that are publicly available. I think if you're not investing in data analytics, you you will get left behind. And frankly, the great thing about construction is we're already behind all the time. We're, I mean, it's the whole, the world's coming to an end. You want to go into construction industry because, you know, we're 20 years behind the rest of the world. So uh, <laughs> you have a chance there that, that we have a chance, we think, to have a competitive advantage or at least keep up. And it's all about, you know, descriptive, prescriptive. I'm sure you've had data analysts on who can describe it better than me, but it's, you know, what level, when can we get to predictive analytics? And we're at the the basics, right? How do we know whether we had a good or bad day yesterday? And what will the next week look like? I mean, we're doing those things right now. And, And we're also doing things like analyzing our pricing. And do we have advantages over different geographic areas? Were our competitors geographically related to us? Those things are now fairly easy to do compared to where we were 10 years ago where you had been dreaming of doing it. But and painful as this is for me to say as an accountant who's lived, eaten, breathed Excel, I think of Excel as being dead now. If I'm dumping data into Excel and doing something with it in any massive way, I probably should be using a different tool at this point. So I mean, I, I hope none of our competitors invest in it, but I, I think that um, we think it's going to be a real competitive advantage for us. Yeah. And I agree. And, it, and it's interesting how it ties so closely into strategy, because as you know, you know, when it comes to strategy, it's all about where you compete and how you compete. And if you could gain a positional advantage by understanding your data and where you're profitable in different geographies or different markets or segments, and then how you compete, if you could use those analytics to change the activities of the business or just the day-to-day patterns or the decisions that you're making on a regular basis that impact so many parts of the business and ultimately 
impact the bottom line. I think that's where companies, when they marry analytics, when they marry finance and they marry strategy all together, I think that's where, you know, like you're talking about that competitive advantage really starts to materialize. Well, in our key focus, again, it, it, the same thing is with, I mean, we talked about offense and defense, right? I've tried to very much keep our team and it's, it's my team focused on offense, right? We're really good at improving processes. Our guys, I mean, they know how to do that. It's, just, it's not going to be our big win. But if we can find how to improve our pricing strategy or we can find a, a market maybe we're not tapping or we can, uh, those type of areas I think are the, the, the big opportunities uh, to me in terms of low-hanging fruit for data. So that we've tried to stay on the offensive side, which is really hard because we like to go find a way to save a dollar by spending less, but to keep us focused on offense so that we can operate more efficiently, but, but more importantly, we can serve our customer better. Yep. I think that's really smart. So let's talk more macro. You know, here we are in these very interesting times, the pandemic upended, you know, the global economy, labor markets are, you know, crazy and there's shortages here and surpluses here. You know, it's just very interesting times. How do you view transformation in business as we enter into 2021? I'm lucky in that I, I, I think my business is well positioned in, in those things. So when I start talking about real transformation and we're talking about some major paradigm shifts and, and I, everything I read says and some of what we're seeing is really just an acceleration of digital worlds and those sorts of things. But some real, I mean, some people are going to be really disrupted forever. The first thing I would look to is what are the core values of your company? Right. Because if you look at your core values right now and they don't seem to apply or something seems to be missing, it is probably time to revisit them. And I always think it's interesting And our company puts safety, honesty, accountability, respect, entrepreneurship, integrity and excellence, core values of our organization. So when I look at those, I feel like they've served us well during everything that we've adapted to. Um, so I think you always start there when anything is transforming. So that when you start making decisions, you go, are they in line with our core values? And I think anybody has core values who doesn't have something in there about profitability, we use entrepreneurship, which I think is a great term for it, is misleading themselves, right? Because, because money is the fuel that runs the company. So you've got to pay attention to it. Profit's fuel, right? To, to do whatever your mission is. Yep. So I, I think you start to look at that. You start to look at making sure in this particular time that your team building is up to par. We're very fortunate in having a, a, a very steady workforce, but I worry we're milking the goodwill that we have. Now, we've been milking it for almost a year without having face-to-face -face meetings and everything being on Teams or Zoom. So I, I think you start worrying about your team in the sense of, do we have the right team? And I can remember the last major market disruption wasn't quite as severe as this. I'm a big believer that the first thing you look for is attitude, then aptitude, and then uh, the potential. Right. So to me, the first thing you know to survive any hard time is that people with a good attitude. Um, it's my number one criteria. If we have to do any reduction in force, which we've been fortunate to really not have to do, do I have people with a good attitude because those are the people who survive hard times. Then are they good at their job? That's their aptitude. And then can they do more is their potential? And that's how you evaluate people. So you make sure you've got people who have the right attitude and it will have shown itself during this. No doubt. What do you value? What kind of people do you have? I think the paradigm to me that's shifting through all this is what do we really value? And I think it's the reason you'll see an increase in the minimum wage because before this, we probably didn't think of our grocery workers or our construction workers, our people as essential work. But suddenly we realized those people are a lot more important to us than the lawyers right now, right? And even the accountants, God forbid I say such a thing. Um, so, and we've seen during the pandemic, at least for my anecdotal experience with lawyers is, is litigation has dropped off a cliff because people are focused on what is really essential. So 
if I'm in a business that's not essential in the sense of going to serve the new world order, for lack of a better term, that sounded horrible. Um, <laughs> I think that I, I look at my strategy is that what would determine and make me essential if a pandemic comes up again? Because who knows what this all looks like 10 years from now. But uh, I know that if I own a grocery store, I'm probably pretty important. And if I know I do construction, I know I'm pretty important to the world. So I don't know if that answered the question, but that that's where my brain is circulating on, on how do you build for the future? Well, and I, I like that. And I like how you mentioned, you know, core values and really understanding what you're all about, right? First, and like starting from that core. And then I also like how you mentioned, you know, the attitude, the aptitude and the potential, because I think that's a great way to assess the, the talent base that you have and, and whether or not you have the right people on the bus to make this transformation happen. Because the transformation you and I know is difficult, right? And some organizations, they have to transform to survive, but sometimes they just can't pull it off. So what do you think prevents these organizations from like sustaining true transformation? So, I mean, there, there are a couple of things. I think you have to look of changing or transformation as a always going on process. And I think it was uh, one of the interesting things when I shifted subsidiaries uh, from our company in Virginia, our company in New Jersey, that company in Virginia is small. It had a core leadership team of five. So it was three controllers, corporate controller, myself. We could decide to make a change and have it done in a week. And if it was wrong, we could change gears again and change gears again and adapt very quickly. And like I said, there's 11 regions. There's divisional controllers and a corporate controller, myself, and a VP of finance. And so we can't change like that on a dime. It just, it's too big a ship, but you, that can also make you very static. And so in my second year on the job, it was about starting to introduce change because you need your team to be malleable. You need them to be able to adapt to change. So part of it is if you've been complacent for too long, it's really hard to generate that. So you start with something small or simple or whatever. And then I think when you start talking about change management, there, there are a couple of things. If you're trying to do a change, you got to make it somebody's job full-time. I mean, they, they need to wake up in the morning worrying about it because if it's somebody's side job, it takes forever. It never gets done because, you know, I'm a big believer. If you want something done, it's got to be if somebody wakes up in the morning worrying about it. So th that's always my communication is key and it can't be over communicated what you're doing, why you're doing it, treating people fairly during that. And then there is what I like to call the change bubble, which is the reality of change is you get worse before you get better. And if you don't understand that going in, if you think you're going to make a change and the next day things get better, that never happens. You always go down and you bottom out somewhere and then you get yourself back up. And, you know, managing that bubble is change management to me. It's, it's how low can I keep us from going too low? Can I get us back out of there as quickly as possible? But you have to prepare people for that sort of change. And the other one to me is when you're dealing with change is discerning between what is legitimately a problem, something you may have missed in your plan or in your process or in your execution, and somebody just complaining because they don't like change. I, I can remember when we rolled out a major ERP now, probably seven years ago, I was the second company that was going to go live on the ERP. So I went out to visit the first company when they went live three months ahead of me to see how it was going. And the CFO out there, who's, who's a good friend, I'm out there, we're, we're talking in the hall and, and one of the AP professionals comes out and goes, I don't know, this is terrible, da, 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 da. And my peer was like, oh, it's going to be fine. Don't worry, da, da, da. Go back into the training. And I said, Tracy, I'm not sure uh, you handled that correctly. And he goes, he goes, what do you mean? He, I said, he, I said, the mantra is hard on the process, easy on the people. And I'm like, yeah, but there's a little bit of a toughen up buttercup. This is the way it's going to be. So you have to balance those things because what she was complaining about was not that it didn't work. There was something missed. It was like, I just don't like it because it's different. Um, and you've sure. got to get people past that. And so you lean on the people who can change and you convince the people who have to be convinced and you may jettison people who can't make the transformation.
Yeah, because I mean, that's a good point. When you look at construction, you know, it's an, it's definitely an aging workforce and there's not enough younger people coming up, you know, in through the ranks into construction to, you know, replace this older generation that's in construction. So a lot of these companies are being ran by a little bit older workforce. The issue that I see is like you have, you know, young people coming in, going back to our, our earlier conversation where they come in, they think they know everything. They, they think they're ready to be CFO, but they lack the experience. And then you have the older generation, they have the experience, but they may not have like the technical savvy and, you know, they may not have the energy to just constantly innovate and change. And, you know, they're reaching the end of their career. Don't you think that can create real problems within an organization? And how do you navigate that if so? It can. And I think the other challenge that, that you fall out of that is you've got the guy who's been around for years and he goes, well, you know, I did that for 10 years before I got my opportunity, but our workforce is not replenishing enough that somebody can stay stagnant for 10 years. The expectation of an, anybody you're hiring now is that they're going to move up fairly quickly it may be unreasonably so, but they're probably not going to sit in a dormant position for 10 years till they get their big shot. So not only do they push back on innovation and change sometimes, but they push back on moving really good people up the line. And they may value seniority over ability. So those are all big challenges right now. And so I, I think that the advantage of a company like ours that is larger is we can keep an eye on that. And we're pretty good about identifying high potential people, carving them out in the special training, connecting them with peer groups across the organization, and really got to coach up your management team. And, and I, I dare say, even the guys I think of as being our old guys have been around forever and in, are just icons of the industry, have I've watched them adapt over the last four or five years into being more receptive. So it's it's like any change. You've got to push people along sometimes to get them in that mindset, but everybody's still capable of learning and developing, I think. Yeah. And I agree. And I, I think, you know, there, there's a good balance between the younger generation, the older generation, and also, you know, the gas and the brakes of the organization. Some people are the gas, right? They want to go really quickly. They want to change. They want to innovate. Some people want to put the brakes on and say, Hey, let's slow down. Let's, let's think this through and be strategic and, and really make sure we're heading in this direction. Cause I think the worst thing you could do is just to change for change sake. I absolutely agree. And I'm a guy who loves to change. So it's really important that the people I surround myself with know how to put the brakes on me. And I always have to be careful because I love to brainstorm, right? I love to throw ideas up. And it took me a while to figure out when you're CFO and you start throwing ideas up that are just thoughts, people start to take them as gospel sometimes. And you have to go, no, no, no. We're all equals in the brainstorming room. I, you know, I, I, as I put it to my team, I often have the first idea. I rarely have the best idea. So everybody has permission to call me on having not had, I mean, I'm quick, I'm quick on my feet. And so, you know, depending on the team I'm with, I'll keep my mouth shut, which took me a long time to learn to do and listen to how it goes and interject later. But I, you have to be careful because you, you sometimes people like me just really like to change stuff because it's been dormant too long. And I, I try to make sure I don't do that. And that's sort of a maturation process. Changing just to change, you better have a reason. And if you can't articulate it in 30 seconds, you're not clear enough on why you're doing something. Yeah, absolutely. So with your uh, psychos acronym, where do you hope to take the whole finance function like going into the future? Like when you think of this, you know, high performing team, what do you think of it? And what's the end goal of all this? So, I mean, it depends on the role, right? So I, I think that ultimately I would like to see my controllers really stepping into that strategic business partner. And I think they will. And, and many of them are. So it's not fair to say that nobody is, but it, it some depends on the business leader they're working for. And, and some depends on where they are in their development and, and where they are in their career. But that's ultimately the goal for them. But you have to do all of these things well, I think, to be effective as a finance team. So from an operations perspective, I want to be incredibly efficient. And, and that means 
if I can find a way to process transactions more efficiently, uh, cheaper, then that's what I'm going to try to do. And making sure that when we have major organizational changes, the finance team is involved, even if it's just helping the process. And like I said, I, I, and one of my other big pet peeves is let's differentiate between what is a KPI and what is a key metric, right? Because I think we sometimes get those confused. And if we can roll up true KPIs where people can adapt their activity to generate a better result, be that on safety, be that on financial results, those are the, I, I think the more we can hone in on those, because uh, sometimes I think we fall into the more information is better, and that's not always true. You can just bury people in numbers sometimes. So I sure. think the more we get that laser focused of what drives us and, and make smart KPIs, I think that's always a good place to be. Yeah, that's a great point. Let, let's dive into the weeds here a little bit of your, your whole finance function. Do you feel like over time, your you know chart of accounts has become more simplified? Your financial reporting has less line items on it. It's more rolling in, in nature. Like, talk to me about how you've changed like reporting and and just the transactional day to day side of the finance accounting function. Sure. I mean, I think that it's become more customized is what I would say. So I don't know that we have simplified because I think of job costing is fairly complex, but I think our people have simplified jobs. You know, we have less cost codes, less different buckets to the point where I think early on when we rolled our ERP out, you might have 200 lines on a job within that can have, you know, eight general ledger accounts or object accounts if you use J.D. Edwards. And, and that's crazy because it should never be more complex than a foreman can fill out. That's sort of my philosophy on it. And it's, it's funny how the finance side finds themselves in the opposite position we sometimes are. I'm the guy saying, make it simpler, have less detail. And also our, our operations people tend to be very conservative forecasters. So I'm certainly the aggressor on budgeting. We've spent a lot more time beyond our, I think our chart of accounts and general ledger, and those things are fairly stable. Occasionally we'll add something to, to create another level of reporting, but we're much more focused on being better at projecting where we're going to come out. We spend a lot more time on tools that allow us to do better budgeting, annual budgeting, three-year budgeting. So our, our ability to get our crystal ball clearer so that we can look forward has become much more important uh, to us uh, and because we've gotten very efficient at closing our books and generating financials. I think we're very good at that. We're, we close a pretty good size organization in four days to have, you know, EACs completed and, and, you know, revenue recognition done. So I think our focus has shifted more and more to how can we project the future and, and what are we driving off of to know what does our financials look like in the next rolling 12 months in the future, more so than looking uh, backwards 12 months. And how do your financial reporting meetings look like when you are presenting these financials to, you know, business leaders outside of the, the accounting finance function, are you guys getting into the weeds of each line item? Are you having more strategic conversations and how, how's that shifted over the years, Hunter? So I, I think that um, I'm sure at the regional level, the, those guys get pretty into the details of their numbers because where a number may be material to an individual asphalt plant, they're going to figure out what happened and, and drive into it. But then there's a high level review and they're talking to um, the corporate team where I am. It's going to be much more about a few key indicators on the financials. And then what are we doing to move those numbers, uh, whether it's selling price up or where we think we can save money or whatever it's going to be. And our focus has shifted as we have budget meetings and reviews much more away from the financial numbers, which, which our guys love, right? Because we have a lot of engineers and, you know, engineers, they love numbers. They're just the guys who didn't have the personality to become accountants. And so we, uh, we, we still have to have numbers for those guys, but we're 
much more of what are the key assumptions? What are the key drivers of the business? What things have to happen? What are our key initiatives? Uh, that's much more the conversation than the numbers nowadays. And and what kind of conversations and how do you communicate to your boss, right? To, I'm guessing you have conversations with the CEO. Do you get into the weeds? Do you keep it more high level? Like how do you convey that story behind the numbers? So I have a great experienced uh, CEO who is an engineer, so he'll love that comment about buying the personality of being an accountant. And, and he can read a set of financials as well as I can. So we don't often have to have conversations. But if he sees something that doesn't make sense to him, he'll ask me to drill into it, right? So I don't have to summarize the financials for him. He gets the same data I do at a, at a fairly high level and can drill down. And generally speaking, the operations are explaining numbers to him up his chain of command. So he may ask me to validate or to look into something, but they're all doing that at our division level up to us. When we're talking, we're, we're almost always talking about people, about business strategy, about structure. Uh, those are our conversations tend to stay in that area uh, with some exceptions. When we're doing an acquisition or a major capital project, I may be much more in the weeds of numbers on that to make sure we agree with what's been entered and uh, what we're projecting or how we think things are going to go. And then, then it's a whole different level of conversation. But generally speaking, we tend to stay above the fray on that. And when you're having these conversations, how do you measure whether or not the business is on track and it's successful? Well, we do the worst thing, which is how do we do compare to last year, right? That's like the simplest thing people do. Are we better or worse than last year and why? And, and that's a, and so it's a good, I mean, that is not a horrible thing, but that doesn't explain whether last year is the anomaly or this year is the anomaly if it's way off. So we compare it to budget. So we do a monthly budget each year or twice a year to say how are we going to do each month during the year. So that gives you a good baseline of why you're ahead or behind. Right? One of the things we're trying to do with data analytics is get weather involved in our budgeting because it's a big driver to our results. And so if we know how many real work days do we have versus our budget, it may tell us why we're ahead or behind on budget just based on weather, which is kind of a side note. So those are some of the metrics we use. We look at three-year rolling averages um, because we're in a fairly stable business because we're really driven in large part by state budgets because our biggest customer is always the DOT. And then more and more, we're looking at how is our pricing going versus the prior year? What are our top customers doing? Uh, but that's sort of handled, again, at the local level because it's, it's ultimately... Road construction is a local business. I mean, asphalt's a very perishable product. So it's, you know, only good within a certain radius around an asphalt plant, and it's just a big black rock. So we really rely on the local guys to handle the detailed analysis like that. And we're looking at the higher level. What are the trends and what are we seeing at, the, at that level? Let's talk about time because time is so precious. And, you know, typically from my experience, the, the finance function, accounting function, they work a lot of hours, right? And I remember when I was CFO, we wasted so much time reporting on just the immaterial stuff of the business. I mean, there, I'd look at reports and I'd, I'd ask them like, why are we tracking this? Like the upside, even if we fix this, like even if we tracked it and we realized there's an issue and we're able to, to rectify that issue, the upside is so small compared to over here, you know, where our throughput's off, we're not maximizing the return on our labor. Like let's focus our attention here, provide the analytics to operations over here. So when you look at your business, whether it's, you know, from your level or on the controller level, or just the whole entire department or function, what, waste an incredible amount of time and what just drives you a little bit crazy. You're like, ah, I wish we could be more efficient or do this differently so we could free up time to do more of that analysis and the forecasting and strategic thinking. Yeah. I mean, I think that's always the challenge for finance, right? Is, is you, in part of that when you test it, how could we make psycho successful? It'd be less time preparing and more time analyzing. And that's ultimately the goal. And that does come down to understanding there's a cost 
to every number you produce, right? The more detail, the more cost there is. I mean, one of our problems is, unfortunately, we're part of a much larger organization and they have certain reporting requirements, but they have done a really good job of over the last three or four years in particular of streamlining that so that there were times when I think I said, I think we're reporting the same number four different ways. And all that takes time to send it up. And it's all a spreadsheet and they've got it. So it's all coming out of the ERP. So we, I think we've made a lot of progress there. There's still too much time that we are spending with inventory adjustment uh, as a manual process, which I think needs to be automated a lot more. Uh, and ours is kind of a tough inventory business, right? Because we're not talking about widgets. We're talking about piles of rocks. So sure. it's a little bit different than, than counting individual boxes of something. So I think that's a golden opportunity for us to be more efficient. I think we've, uh, we've tried to centralize some of our processing in the last couple of years, so our posting of cash and our entering of payables, we started centralizing our AP entry right at the beginning of the pandemic. So that's been an interesting thing to keep that rolling during this whole thing where we were planning on visiting each region and rolling it out with them. And now we've had to do it all virtually, including that whole team has joined our company and some of them never seen each other. They've only worked virtually with each other. So that's been a, a really interesting challenge for us this year. So I, I think what we have tried to do is we tend to be because of this 11 region independent businesses, treat them all with their own office. And so we've looked for opportunities to create efficiency by centralizing processes that are transaction processing without losing the local touch. And that's a difficult balancing act because again, we're we're not the biggest cost there. But what I don't want is my controller derailed for two weeks because the AP person quit. And so suddenly now they've got to worry about that. And that's all they can worry about for two weeks. So that's my goal wasn't for financial savings. I mean, that would be nice. And I don't want to cost anymore. But my goal was I don't want my controller's time tied up in this when it should be tied up in something else. And so most of our centralization initiatives have been about taking that kind of work away from the region so the controller never gets derailed by one person, you know, one person leaving the circus and shutting everything down. Sure. Absolutely. That, that makes sense. So when you think about the future, you know, given all this and given our conversation, what are you most excited about when you look ahead? Well, I'm really excited about data analytics. That's sort of been my hot button for now. For, for, and we've had just a really good year. It's really interesting in that we've got a team on it, but that we actually hired a true, I don't have the right terms, data scientist, but he's, he's a data analyst who I was very lucky to get because he, he's probably the smartest guy in any room he walks into, which, uh, and, and I think very highly of myself, so I don't say that lightly. And um, uh, in his first two months on the job, about three months in, right around the middle of March, we said, stop what you're doing and can you build us a map like we see, you know, uh, at Johns Hopkins on COVID, but we want it localized to where we operate into our region so we can get those numbers and we can uh, sort of make some safety decisions based on where people are uh, because, you know, safety is the number one core value. So we had to figure out how to work safely before we went back to work. And now we shut down in the winter because asphalt is not a great cold product. So the timing worked for us and we delayed ourselves to make sure. But that way we've been able to monitor cases at our local level down to the counties where we operate to determine the risk of our people and help decide whether we are not opening offices, right? Because in a weird way during the pandemic, at least the virus, you're a higher risk working in an office than you were out on a paving crew when you're outside and you're more distant. So we, we've been monitoring that. And, and so just that little bit of thing gave an incredibly powerful tool to help us be safer during all that, plus all the other things we've managed to do during the course of the last year. It, it's transformative in terms of the closer we keep to operations and integrate us with it. And 
Luckily, it's falling under finance. It doesn't have to, but we happen to be the most familiar with the data side of it. And we know the business as a whole, which is one of the great accounting advantages is we're not as siloed. Well, I heard one of your guests a week or so ago talk about how the great thing about the CFO is they get to see the whole business or our controller gets to see everything where somebody else may be focused on the construction or focused on the asphalt or the quarry. They see the whole thing. So we're well suited to building these analytics that can serve the whole organization. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, I'm very excited about a recruiting program that we have that we are creating that we're going to hire out of college, but we're going to rotate people for two years through our organization. One, so they get a lot of, we're trying to put five years in two years, basically, uh, by rotating through different functions, accounts that we bring in and, and rotating them to different geographies, which will do both move them very quickly along, understanding the business and, and let us shepherd them along. But also, because, you know, like you said, we don't have enough people coming in. So that's true even in finance. If we're going to expand, we're going to need controllers and, and these things is to speed them up on that. And also to create a workforce that's geographically mobile, right? So they'll be used to the idea of living in a different city and not just their hometown, which is sometimes a challenge, as I'm an example of. So I'm very excited about those are probably my two favorite initiatives right now. Yeah. People and analytics. I, I think those are two key things of the future for sure. Well, and, and I got to say, Hunter, you know, on this show, strategic financial leadership is the theme. And I mean, you exhibit that exactly in what we've been talking about today, you know, empowering your team to be thinking about things like analytics and being these catalysts of change and, and focusing on becoming strategic business partners. And I like your leadership style of how you empower people and you don't hold back. You know, you have these 11 controllers that you're really trying to strengthen and you're not, you know, fearful of sharing too much or empowering them like some people do. So I, I think that's great. And it, it says a lot about your leadership style and about the culture at Barrett. So it's been such a pleasure talking to you. And I, I really appreciate you sharing these insights and your example to all the listeners out there, because I think it's really powerful and it, it's, it's something great to emulate. Well, thank you. I very much appreciate the opportunity and uh, I appreciate the kind words, but you know, it's, it's like anybody that the team that I'm working with is making it all possible. They really are the ones who do all the heavy lifting. I just, you know, sit around and have good ideas. That's about all I do. Yep. And I, I think, you know, to your point, when you're talking about people and people aren't coming into the finance function quick enough or coming into certain industries quick enough, I think companies that can foster this environment of, you know, empowerment, innovation, forward thinking, strategic thinking, I mean, people are going to want to attach on to these organizations and stay there. And I think uh, Barrett, you know, from my interaction with your company, a lot of great people work there and a lot of smart people. And, and that's just a testament to what you guys are doing. So congratulations and, and keep up the good work. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. No, it's a great bunch of people to work with up and down the organization. For sure. All right, Hunter, it's been great. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and thanks everybody for tuning in. Thank you. Stay well. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at I would love to connect. All the best.